We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, because we want to know what Jesus said, did, and taught for ourselves. We don't want to hear it from anyone else. We want to see it in his word for ourselves. Last week, we saw Jesus invite everyone who was thirsty to come to him. In the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, at a moment of silence with the eyes of hundreds of thousands of people upon him, he stood up and invited anyone who was thirsty for life, for hope, for truth to come to him. This week, we're going to find out if it's really true that anyone can come to Jesus. We know He's invited us to come, but can we be too far gone? Can we be too deep in our mistakes and our bad choices? Does the invitation of Jesus really stand for everyone? This week, we're gonna dig into one of the most famous interactions Jesus had, which includes one of the verses most frequently quoted by those who don't believe in Jesus. So remember the context of our study today. Jesus is in Jerusalem where the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are trying to find a way to murder him. They have been scheming and plotting over a way to kill Jesus. However, in order to make that happen, they need to get the people on their side. Firstly, because they want to keep their positions of power, something that would be in danger if they crucified or tried to get Jesus killed against the popular vote. They would essentially lose their positions of power. They don't want to do that. Secondly, they need the people on board with this idea because they don't actually have the authority to execute anyone. The Romans do not allow the Jews to administer capital punishment, executions. The only way that could happen would be if a Jew had done something against Rome, or in the case of Jesus, if Jesus became such a polarizing, troubling, trouble-causing figure that the Romans would execute him to essentially keep the political situation calm and prevent things from erupting. They would kill him for the greater good of political stability. Also remember that Jesus has just spent the night on the Mount of Olives doing what? He's been praying, that's right, recharging his spiritual batteries, getting his soul revived, and as we'll find out, whether he knew it or not, being spiritually prepared for a unique challenge he would face the very next day. Let's jump in. John chapter 8, verse 2. It says, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. It's around the time of sunrise. And you may recall that at this time in Jewish culture, the teacher would sit and the audience would stand. So in keeping with Bible tradition, if you would just stand, I'm going to, no, I thought thought I'd try. He's most likely teaching on one of the, the large patio areas. As we mentioned last week, the Temple Mount complex was 35 acres at this time. He's probably in one of the patios known as the treasury or the one known as Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico. Do you know why Jesus is there? Why he's there first thing in the morning? Simply to be available to anyone who wanted to meet with him, who wanted to be taught by him. He's still available to anyone who wants to meet with him, to anyone who wants to be taught by him. But it's far better now because he's available anytime, anywhere. He's here right now. Proverbs 8, it says this, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And I just want to encourage you as we dig in, don't ever forget that God is available to you. He is available. How different our lives would be if we could remember that one truth all the time. God is available to us. 
Now here comes the trap that the religious leaders have come up with. This is their plan to turn the people against Jesus. Verse three, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Underline the word caught, caught in adultery. So here's the scene. Jesus is teaching and he's interrupted by a group of men, religious leaders, who sort of push this woman in front of Jesus. And the original language makes it clear that these same group of men who caught her in the act are the ones who are bringing her. She's most likely wrapped in something like only a bed sheet because you get the gist in the story that they didn't really go, why don't you take a few minutes to get yourself together, sister, and we'll wait outside the door. They, they grab her and bring her to Jesus. She's ashamed. She's just got a sheet wrapped around her. She's terrified. She knows that the Jews don't have the authority to legally stone her to death, but she knows that when a mob gets angry, man, anything can happen including her being stoned to death. You see, you have to remember, this was 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, before everyone in the Middle East was known for getting along. There you go. And it says, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught, again, underline, caught in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law, underline the law, commanded us that such, and then underline, should be stoned. You see, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament book of the law, we read these instructions from God. They're on your outline. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It also says, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. You see, the Lord knew man's propensity for sexual sin. He knew this would always be a temptation, always be an issue for man. So he created this plan for family and marriage that's built around radical exclusivity but he knew he had to put a serious, serious consequence in order for this to work. So he put the most serious consequence he could, death, because Jesus was deadly serious about kids not growing up in broken homes because of the sin of their parents. He's very, very serious about it. And because of the severity of the sentence, death, there were safeguards in the law to prevent people being executed from false accusations. He didn't want people being stoned because of something in the National Enquirer. So there had to be at least two witnesses whose testimonies were identical. The evidence had to be absolutely conclusive. History tells us that one couple was set free because one of the witnesses couldn't name the tree under which they saw the people doing the deed. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that adultery would only be punished about once every seven years because the requirements for evidence were so stringent. That's why when these religious leaders bring her to Jesus, they say this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. They're saying we caught her in the act. We were all witnesses. This is an ironclad case. So before we go any further, to make sure we fully appreciate the quandary Jesus is in here, what would you do? She's guilty. There's no doubt about it. And they are 100% correct when they say Moses says in the law that God gave him, she should be stoned to death. What in the world do you do? I think sometimes we, we read through these things so fast so we don't stop and go, what the heck do you do? I mean, 
I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably be like, oh my gosh, look over there, and try and make an exit really, really, really quickly. She's guilty under the law, they tell Jesus. The law says she must be stoned. They remind Jesus of that. And then they say, but what do you say? But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. This woman was not reported to the religious authorities. She was caught in the very act by the religious authorities. Bible scholars are generally completely united in the opinion that all of this was a plan. It was an orchestrated, intentional plot. Church tradition even holds that the man in this encounter was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of them. He was a religious leader. Whether he was or not, we can't help but notice he's not there. He's not there. They're not really interested in justice. They don't really care about right and wrong because they let him off the hook. They caught them in the very act and apparently they left him out of it. He's been given a free pass, which I think gives some credence to the idea that he was one of their own. At a minimum, the situation was intentionally orchestrated so the religious leaders would be able to catch this woman in the act of adultery at a pre-planned place and time. Their concern is not justice or righteousness. Here's the crux of their brilliant plan. She's guilty. She's been caught in the act, and they have more than two witnesses to prove it, which is what was required under the law. They have an airtight case under the law. She is guilty. If Jesus says, her sin is forgiven, let her go, then they'll be able to say, Jesus breaks the law of Moses. He teaches against the law. He's a heretic. Jesus wouldn't be fulfilling the law, which he claimed he had come to do. You remember he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He would be breaking the law and his ministry would be delegitimized. So write this down. If Jesus dismisses her sin, he will be violating the law. If Jesus dismisses her sin, he will be violating the law. If Jesus says, you know, you're right. The law is the law. She should be stoned. The crowd will say, whoa, 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 what what about all this my yoke is easy, my burden is light stuff? What about all this friend of sinners business? What about this grace and mercy talk? I guess we're still doomed under the law. And Jesus' ministry would lose its audience. He would be offering nothing new. And he'd just fade into obscurity. Additionally, if he said she should be stoned, He could be brought up on charges of trying to stir the crowd up to enforce capital punishment, which would now cause the Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus for causing trouble. So write this down. If Jesus agrees with the law that she should be stoned, he will no longer be the friend of sinners and will risk the wrath of Rome. He will no longer be the friend of sinners and will risk the wrath of Rome. For what they were trying to accomplish... This is a pretty great plan. I mean, horribly wicked and awful and terrible and inspired by Satan, but very, very well thought out. So what's Jesus going to do? Let's keep reading. Verse six. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This this must have just frustrated them immensely because they had to have been looking forward to seeing Jesus rattled. And he's just not. He just ignores them, they think, and begins to write in the sand. And they're thinking, oh, he's probably trying to come up with uh, the perfect comeback, plotting his strategy in the sand. I don't know about you, but I'm the king of comebacks. It's probably my spiritual gift. <laughs> the only problem I'm working on is the five-hour delay. If I can get that down, 
Watch out, world. So they pressed Jesus for an answer in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. He looked up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This answer is brilliant, beyond brilliant. And it's going to take us a little while just to unpack all the layers of genius that are in the answer of Jesus. I don't know how to better describe his answer than simply divine. It's heaven sent, literally. So the first thing Jesus does is he points back to the law. All the way back in Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, the Lord had given this command. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to be put to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So here's the idea. If you were one of the witnesses who testified against somebody in a capital case where they would be stoned to death, the Lord commanded that any witnesses who gave testimony in that case had to be the first to throw stones. This was a protection against people giving false testimony, false witness, because the implication was if it ever comes out that you lied about what this person did, if it ever comes out that you conspired against them, you will be guilty of murder and the same will be done to you. And that's gonna throw a real damper on their evil plan because they know that they conspired to make this whole thing happen. And if that ever comes out, they're gonna be facing stoning themselves. So Jesus is calling their bluff, so to speak. He's asking them, I know you're lying. How high do you wanna raise the stakes? Do you wanna put your lives on the line for the sake of this lie? So write this down. Jesus first reminds the accusers that the law condemns them too. We also notice that in verses six and eight, Jesus writes in the sand. And the truth is we don't know exactly what he's writing, but clearly it's significant. It's a detail that's included on purpose. And not only that, it's included redundantly. It's repeated twice, which means there's something we're supposed to notice there. And what's interesting is that in the original language, it actually reads that Jesus wrote against. It's the Greek words katagrapho. It means wrote against in the sand. Who's he writing against? Well, he's obviously writing against these religious leaders. And so I think when we look at what unfolds here, we'll find there's some compelling evidence that Jesus is indeed writing against these men. So Jesus writes in the sand. He replies, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he writes in the sand again. Now look at what happens next, and we'll tie this all together. Verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So would you say Jesus struck a nerve with the religious leaders? You bet, even these hardened men were convicted by their own sinfulness because even when nobody else knows what you're doing, you still know what you've been doing. In the original Greek, what Jesus literally says to them, this is very interesting, is this. He who is not capable of sinning the same way, let him throw a stone at her first. In other words, if you've never done what she has done, if you know for sure you'll never do what she has done, then go ahead and throw the first stone. It's very important he's addressing sin of the same kind. He's not just saying anyone who's perfect. He's saying specifically, if you haven't sinned the same way she has, if you know for sure you will never sin the same way she has, go ahead and throw a stone. It's heavy stuff. This is where it gets amazing. I want you to notice a prophecy on your, prophecy on your outline. 
from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, 13, hundreds of years before Jesus says this in the Old Testament. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed, they'll be embarrassed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Just last week in our study, the event that happened just a few days before the event we're reading now, what happened? Jesus stood up the last day, Feast of Tabernacles, and declares this to the whole crowd of Jerusalem. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This prophecy in Jeremiah reads, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be, on your outline underline, written in the earth because they have, underline, forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is writing their names in the sand. And next to each name, perhaps thou shalt not commit adultery or Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, both from the Ten Commandments. Or perhaps next to their name, he writes a hotel room number, Holiday Inn, room 207. A website, the name of somebody else's wife, someone they were just fantasizing about earlier that very day. All we know is that Jesus' words and his writing in the sand together had a profoundly convicting effect on these religious leaders. Some commentators say that Jesus was writing their sexual sins in order of oldest to youngest. And very quickly what happens is the men begin to realize he's going oldest to youngest. I'm next. Slips out there. Says, you know, okay, you guys go ahead. Stone her without, get started with the stoning without me. I need to pick up some milk for my wife on the way home. I'll, I'll catch up. Tell me all about it. It's also possible that the older men were actually a little bit more mature and could see where this was all going. And they're simply the first to clue into what is going on and what Jesus is doing, and they don't plan on sticking around to see their name written in the sand. Both are possible. Here's what I find perhaps the most brilliant thing about what Jesus does. He doesn't violate the law. He doesn't break the law to save this woman. Remember, the law required how many witnesses to establish testimony? Two witnesses. Jesus simply gets rid of all of the witnesses. Jesus doesn't free this woman by saying she's not guilty. He simply gets rid of all of the witnesses, all the evidence, all of the testimony against her. So under the law, she could not be found guilty because there were no witnesses to her sin. It's absolutely incredible what Jesus does. He removes every witness to her sin. Write this down. Jesus forgave and freed the woman without violating the law. He forgave and freed her without violating the law. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, and I just want to point out here, the the word that Jesus uses here for woman is the Hebrew equivalent of ma'am. It's the same word that he uses to address his own mother at the wedding in Cana in John 2, and it's the same word he uses to address his mother from the cross in John 19. He doesn't call this woman sinner, He doesn't call her harlot. He calls her by the same term of endearment that he uses to refer to his own mother. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? 
Has no one condemned you? He's literally saying, has no one judged you worthy of punishment? She said, no one, Lord. Now don't miss this. The religious leaders call him master or teacher, rabbi. But this woman calls him what? She calls him Lord. If your Bible says sir, you need to know that that's the wrong translation. It's important that your Bible says Lord. Changes everything. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. He's saying neither do I judge you worthy of punishment. Now the reason Jesus could say that is not because he's a nice guy. The reason Jesus could say that is not because he said, I'm here to declare sin is not really a big deal. The reason he could say, neither do I condemn you, was because he could have ended that sentence with the words, because I will be condemned for you. Neither do I condemn you, because I will be condemned for you. This is what God is like on your worst day, in the biggest mess of your own creation, when there's no one to blame, and you finally have to admit that it's your fault, you're caught, this is what God is like. Grace, mercy, freedom for those who call him Lord. Listen, this woman received ministry because she was willing to receive ministry. Not everybody wants to receive ministry. And so not everybody can receive ministry. But this woman was willing. She was willing to recognize Jesus as Lord. The grace and mercy of Jesus is available to everyone. And everyone needs it. I need it. You need it. But the grace and mercy of Jesus will only be found by those who are willing to receive him, receive from him, and receive him as Lord. Now, this is usually as far as people know the story. You may have had a non-believer tell you this story. Jesus says that he who is without sin cast the first stone. He says, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. I've heard plenty of non-believers quote the story and say, see, Jesus never condemns sin. He's totally cool with it. There's a reason they leave out the rest of the sentence that Jesus says. Because his last words to this woman are, go, and sin no more. When Jesus says go and sin no more, the original Greek tells us he's literally saying continue on the journey that you have begun today. Continue on the journey you've begun today. You've been set free. You've been set free from sin. So don't go running right back to it. As the Bible says, like a dog returning to its own vomit. I've set you free from the power of sin so that you can live free from the power of sin. Write this down. Jesus didn't set her free to sin. He set her free from sin. He didn't set her free to sin. He set her free from sin. This was Jesus lovingly saying, ma'am, sister, daughter, recognize where your life, a life ruled and dominated by sin has led you. Look around. Recognize what got you here. Now recognize what I'm offering you. I'm offering you freedom. I'm offering you the chance to not have your life destroyed here and in eternity by sin. It's the most loving thing that Jesus could have said in that moment. It's Jesus saying, I don't want to see this cycle of destruction continue in your life. 
I don't want to see you brought before me again two weeks from now because you ran right back to the same lifestyle and ended up on the road to death again. Don't go back on that road. You've been put on the path to life. Now walk on the path to life. Some of you may recall, this is interesting, that Jesus said something very similar to the paralytic man he healed at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. I'll read you the verse from that. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Again, this isn't Jesus the threatening authoritarian. This is Jesus saying the most loving thing he could. He's telling the man he's just healed, hey, if you choose to not follow me, if you choose to go right back to loving sin instead of me, you need to know that that will lead you to something much worse than simply not being able to walk again. There's something worse than that. In both cases, Jesus was showing that he cared much more than simply caring about their immediate physical needs. He cared about their immediate needs, but he also cared about their spiritual and eternal needs. He cared about where the rest of their life was headed. Jesus didn't affirm the sin of the woman. He didn't say, keep living this lifestyle that you're in. It's all good. He gave her mercy and grace when she was right about to reap what she had sown her whole life. And he called her to leave her lifestyle of sin Get on the path to life and follow him instead. This is what it all comes down to. I've said this before, but it bears mentioning many, many times more. Write this down. Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. And this is the single biggest problem the world around us has with Jesus. This is the clash of civilizations between the church and the Western world right now in our lifetime. The world wants Jesus to accept us as we are, affirm our lifestyles as they are, no changes required. The first part is true. Jesus does accept us just as we are. However, the choice to follow Jesus is the choice to leave everything behind that he says is not right or good. It's the choice to trust his judgment over our own. To follow Jesus means he gets to call the shots. You know, there is a place that will accept us exactly as we are and never demand that we change. That place is hell. It's the only place that will accept us exactly as we are and never demand we change. That's why Jesus himself said this about finding salvation. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. We would think it insanity if all of our doctors operated this way. You know, I just met with a patient who has cancer, but I didn't ask them to do anything about it. And in fact, I didn't even mention it because I understand it's not my place to tell someone What's wrong with them? It's my job to simply accept them as they are and affirm whatever lifestyle they're in. We would say that's, that's not how you cure sick people. Everyone is going to die if our health system is run that way. Now hang with me. That's doctors. 
This is God that we're talking about. So just let that sink in. This is God that we're talking about. Our creator, our maker, who knew every day of our life before we were ever conceived. Do we not think that we should listen and obey when God, not a doctor, God tells us that something we're doing is going to lead to death and destruction? Does him telling us that make him unloving? Does it make him a bigot? Does it make him a hater? Does it make him narrow-minded? It does make him narrow-minded because he said, narrow is the way that leads to life. But more than anything, it makes him good because he's telling us the truth. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus loved the paralytic he healed at Bethesda. And Jesus loved the woman who was caught in adultery. So he told them the truth. Because that's what you do when you love someone. He called them to leave their current way of life and instead walk in the way of life. Following him. Jesus loves us just the way we are but he loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. Here's what makes this whole story so profound. You and I are in this story. Every single one of us, you and I, each of us, we are the woman in this story. We're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all rejected God and done our own thing. We've all fallen short of his standard when compared to him and not someone else of our own choosing, when compared to him, None of us measure up. None of us are good. We're all guilty. So in that moment, when we are completely exposed in our sin, with no one to blame but ourselves, what is God like? Jesus told us he is the exact representation of the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to say, show us the Father. You've seen the Father if you've seen me. He loves the way the Father loves. How we see him treat people is how the Father treats people. How we see Jesus interact with this woman is how the Father interacts with us. John 3, 17 tells us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you, when he says, neither do I judge you worthy of punishment, it's because he was judged for her punishment, because he was judged for your punishment, because he was judged for my punishment. He wasn't saying your sin doesn't need to be judged, we'll just forget about it. He was saying you're not the one who's gonna be judged for your sin. I'm the one who's gonna be judged for your sin, because I've chosen to take your place and receive the judgment that should have been given to you. That's what Jesus has done for all of us. He was judged for our sins, and when he died in our place, Every record of every sin we have ever committed, we are committing right now, we ever will commit, was erased. Not because they were just forgotten, but because he paid for them. And now, there's no evidence against us. There are no witnesses against us. There's no testimony to condemn us. That's why Paul wrote this in Colossians 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses, He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you 
all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus says, where are those accusers of yours? The word accused is the same root word used for a name of Satan that the rabbis used. They called him the accuser. For every single one of us, when the books are opened up, there will be no evidence against us. There will be no witness against us. And so there will be no accuser. Like the men who tried to trap Jesus, Satan will have no case. Don't you love Jesus for that? There's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. In closing, let me remind us of this. Jesus loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. The Bible says we were dead in our sins, but he made us alive. He made us alive with him. If he had left us as we were, we would all be dead. We would all be doomed for destruction. But he made us alive. He didn't leave us the way we were. Praise God for that. He's invited you and I to live free, free from condemnation and guilt and from lives controlled by sin. And I pray that we're all taking him up on that invitation. If you're drowning in the shame of your sin, you need to know this morning that Jesus loves you. He loves you where you are right now and he wants to pull you out of that. You can't get yourself together without him. If you're saying, I'll get myself together, then I'll go to Jesus. You'll never get yourself together. Nobody can put you together but Jesus. Run to him today. And the truth is that even when we talk about walking in the way of life, following Jesus, that's impossible for us to do on our own. We can't do that on our own. None of us are capable of just saying, all right, that was a good message. From this point forward, no more terrible, sinful decisions. I'm on the way to life. All thanks to Jeff's sermon. doesn't work that way. Wish it did. Church would be bigger. But it doesn't work that way. So what do we do? We do the same thing this woman did. We start by just calling him Lord, saying, you are Lord. You're the one calling the shots. You're the one who's going to lead. I'm the one who's going to follow. It is impossible for us to do anything on our own, but through faith in Jesus, through the one who lived perfectly, through the one who fulfilled the law in every difficult circumstance, through faith and hope in Jesus, we can walk that road because he walked that road. I don't want you to walk out of here today striving to be more like Jesus. I want us to walk out of here more dependent on Jesus, knowing that we can't look anything like him without his help. Don't try to be more like him. Try to rely on him more. Try to be more desperate for him. Be more dependent on him. That's the key to everything. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for showing us what you're like through your son, Jesus. Lord, we are in awe of who you are and how you are. When you find us in our moment of greatest guilt, our moment where we most deserve condemnation, your response to that was, I'll be condemned instead. I'll take your place. You don't need to be judged. I'll be judged for you. Lord, we've heard this story a thousand times, but 
we have no right to expect that it would ever have ended that way, but it did. And we are so thankful, God. And Father, we just confess that none of us are capable of walking the road of life on our own. None of us are capable of living free from sin on our own. Our hope now is the same hope that saved us. It's your son, Jesus. So we acknowledge that he is our Lord. He is our Savior. And as desperately as we needed him to save us from our sins, we need him to lead us and guide us through the Holy Spirit on the path of life. God, we need you. We need you. Thank you for living a perfect life in our place. Thank you for fulfilling the law in our place. Thank you for dying in our place. Wherever we are in our walk with you, God, our confession is that we need you. We need more of you, Jesus. That's what we're asking for, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.